I V M. Why are countries around the world banning Huawei and its products? Should India follow them? What strategic threats does Huawei pose to Indian telecom? Or is this whole affair over Huawei just blown up by the United States for the sake of their trade war? All of this and more on today's episode of States of Anarchy. Welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan. Every week on the show, I sit down with experts to discuss foreign policy and global affairs. Today, we're discussing a number of things. How does technology matter to a country's security? Does Huawei really pose security threats to India with its 5G trials? How should India respond to the US-China trade war? My guest for today is the perfect person to answer these questions. Manoj Keval Ramani is an associate fellow of Chinese studies at the Takshashila Institution. He spent 11 years working as a journalist before that in India and China. He also curates a weekly brief called the Eye on China, which tracks development in China from an Indian perspective. But before we get into the conversation with Manoj, let's take a short break. Hi everybody, welcome to another great week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On our social media, one of the things we do is if you send us a screenshot of what you're listening to, we will repost it on our social network so that people can see that what people are listening to. Put us some comments and we'll respond to them. Also, want to let people know that we're still hiring. We're looking for producers, content creators, audio engineers, developers, designers, and business roles, and basically all kinds of other things. Go to the careers page on ivmpodcast.com or send us an email at careers at indusbox.com. Wanted to announce two new shows that we are starting: Tech Careers in the New and Agla Station Adulthood. Tech Careers in the New is a brand new podcast presented by Accenture. It's hosted by our very own Shilanditya Mukhopadhyay, my co-host on Shunya One. On this show, he's talking to Accenture leaders about the latest and greatest in the world of technology, and gives exclusive tips on technology careers, how to grab opportunities, and stay relevant. Watch out for fortnightly episodes on Wednesdays starting July third. The other new show that we're launching this week is an exciting show called Agla Station Adulthood, where best friends Ritasha Rathore and Ayushi Amin ride through the various stations of life. Whether in your mid twenties, just entering them, or about to cross into the next decade, tune in to this fun show. On Cyrus Says, best-selling author Amish Tripathi talks to Cyrus about the shared universe of all his books, the rich and inclusive history of ancient India, and his new book in the Ramchandra series, Ravan, Enemy of Aryavarta. On Equity Sahiya, Shrey Lunkar, senior VP at Motilal Oswal AMC, talks to Anupam about the pharma sector in India. On advertising is dead. Varun Dukirala is in conversation with the founders of Pocket Aces, Ashwin Suresh and Anirudh Pandit. They discuss the growth and potential of the Indian digital content market. On Mr. and Mrs. Binge Watch, Janice and Anirudh recommend shows that are easy to watch. Join them as they talk about the TV shows Love, Crashing, and Love Sick. On the 25th episode of Golgappa, Tripathi is joined by film director Vikram Fadnis. He talks about how he started his journey from being a fashion designer to becoming a movie director and his upcoming Marathi movie Smile Please. Also, our host Tripathi plays an important part in this movie. On Not Just Dansa, Parzen talks to chef Viraj Patel about Parsi fusion food. They discuss innovation versus traditional food in the Parsi food circles. On Pulia Bazi, Pranay and Saurabh talk with investor and trader Harsh Vora to better understand the tussle between the Reserve Bank of India and the Indian government. And with that, let's continue with your show. Welcome back to States of Anarchy. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan, and I'm speaking with Manoj Keval Ramani about the U.S.-China trade war and Huawei. Hi Manoj, welcome to States of Anarchy. Hi, thank you. Good to be here. Finally, <laughs> I'm honored to have you here. Um, so, okay, when we're talking about the U.S.-China trade war, I think it's what nearly a year, right? On like July of last year was when the U.S. first announced lists where they. Yeah. Uh, announce specific china tariffs yeah. so what how exactly has this trade war evolved can we call it a trade war so i mean i trade is an element of it mm-hmm. uh, but it's obviously much much more than just trade and i think a lot of people including me have been saying this for for a long time that this is not just about this trade deficit that donald trump has been talking about this is about a much broader strategic rivalry competition that's developing between these two countries um what does it eventually morph into a cold war sort of narrative that's mm-hmm. where i think most of us most people tend to disagree with each other um but i think most people tend to agree that this is not just limited to trade mm. this is much broader technology being at the heart of it mm. um, and that's because how significant technology is to 
future development, future growth, not just in terms of the economy, but also in terms of just who controls levers of power, military affairs, and so on and so forth. So the increasing role of technology in all these areas um, is where this sort of contest currently is located. But yeah, if I sort of go back to it, if you look at Donald Trump's election campaign where he sort of focused on China and he spoke about the trade deficit and he kept talking about how uh, the Chinese have been sort of uh, stealing American jobs and... Taking advantage of America's yeah, good nature. And all, these, and all these past presidents have been absolute fools when they've dealt with the Chinese and, you know, he knows how to deal with them because he's been dealing with them as a businessman for a very, very long period of time. Um, and then he subsequently comes to power and he talks about... Initially, he talks about... Uh, you know, the currency devaluation issue. And then he sort of backs off on the currency issues. Uh, I mean, Trump had said that the moment he gets elected to the White House, the first thing that he's going to do is label the Chinese as a currency manipulator. Hmm. He's still not done that. What does that even mean, like a currency manipulator? Well, his, the argument is that the state is essentially intervening in the valuation of the currency. So pegging the renminbi higher than it actually Exactly. Uh, higher or lower, actually, okay. uh, because you're sort of subsidizing your exports. Hmm. Um, and uh, his argument was that that should, just should not happen. Hmm. Um there's been a case in the past to make for that. I don't see that necessarily as a case anymore. Uh, the Chinese valuation of the currency is very different today than it was maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, so it's, there's, it's far more market-oriented today than it has been in the past. Hmm. Um, so that case to me is not as strong as he had made it during his election campaign. But thereafter, he came to power and he started talking about tariffs. Um, he didn't start with necessarily China-specific, but he started in March last year with uh, steel, steel tariffs. tariffs yeah. right? Argentina, yeah. um, it was a bunch across of the board. It was yeah, across yeah. the board with a number of different countries, mm-hmm. and the Chinese being one of the biggest, given that they produce more than half the world's steel. Mm-hmm. So they're bound to get hit by this. And then after that, he went on to specific issues with regard to China. So in March, there were the steel tariffs. Subsequently, in April, there was a meeting between Trump and Xi okay. um, in the US. Um, and what necessarily happened between the both? I mean, it was just, it was sort of a feeling out meeting to more than anything else. Okay. Um, it sort of started, uh, you got a sense that the Obama administration had this strategic dialogue with mm. the Chinese, which was very structured. Under Trump, uh, uh, one started to realize that this structured dialogue is not really going to happen. That's because uh, half of the State Department of the United States, the, their vacancies do yeah, exist so under the There are capacity economy. issues, but mm. beyond capacity, it was also a case of, uh, well, these good summits are not really producing anything. These good mm. conversations aren't really producing too mm. much. And Trump has an agenda and he wanted that agenda to be enforced. And therefore, he saw no utility in mm. these structured dialogues, which to me is uh, a mistake. Mm. But then he goes about eventually imposing these tariffs. In May, in fact, last year, when these tariffs were being talked about, there was a sense that this is not going to happen because they started talking to each other and they mm. started making some promises to each other. Liu He, who's the vice premier, who's, who's China's chief negotiator with the US, he had visited. And he and, used to be the ambassador to the US at some point. Right? Yeah, yeah, in the past, yeah. Mm. But he's today in a position where he's essentially managing the economy on many fronts. Uh, and... Primarily, his role in the last year or so has been negotiating with the U.S., with uh, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and USTR Lighthizer. And eventually, so Liu He goes to the U.S., they have this conversation. The Chinese come back from this conversation sensing that there is a commitment from the U.S. to not escalate and not impose these tariffs. Um, And Liu He comes back and lo and behold, the Americans go on and impose these tariffs. Um, the Chinese feel sort of taken aback. Mm. And then we get the last, you know, summer, the last summer from May to say August end sometime, we get this series of reports from China where there's a lot of pressure on Xi Jinping. Mm. Um, the international media sort of starts to tag this entire period as a summer of Xi Jinping, summer of discontent. There's a lot of domestic pressure on him because mm. uh, he's just changed the constitution and that's caused frictions. And then his management of the relationship with the U.S. is completely gone south his main man Liu He goes there and he gets you know uh, taken for a ride yeah, in a sense and there's a sense that oh you just don't know what you're doing hmm. um, and at the same time Trump is now threatening that I'm going to increase tariffs on more imports hmm. so the initial round was on 50 billion goods worth 50 billion and the Chinese responded in kind uh, saying that we will do whatever you do we will reciprocate hmm. as opposed to escalating And that's the first thing that happens. And subsequently, then you have another round of escalation later in the year. And then you fast forward to December, Hmm. which is on the 1st of December. These guys meet in Argentina. Okay. Uh, Trump and she had this meeting in Argentina. And they come up with these principles of, you know, how how we need to negotiate. Hmm. And these principles essentially say that, okay, we are going to hold off on raising any more tariffs. So Trump had promised uh, increased tariffs on 200 billion worth of Chinese imports. 
and uh, that's the increase in the amount. So he okay. initially imposed 10% tariff on 200 billion. So the okay. first lot was 10% on 50 billion. The second lot was 10% on 200 billion. Mm. And the final suggestion was I raise the tariff, a percentage of tariff to 25%. Okay. That he says we'll hold on to mm. and we won't do right now. And neither side will escalate. Um, for a period of 90 days which, during which we will negotiate and we will have this broad-based negotiation. On the same day while they are meeting uh, in Argentina, Meng Wanzhou, who is mm. the CFO of Huawei, gets detained in Canada. Um, and on charges, on really weird charges, right? On uh, charges which were not new. Uh, that is the thing, that these charges were not new. Uh, the charges against her, there are multiple charges, but the primary issue is there is that she's... Uh, violated American sanctions on trade with Iran and you've lied while mm. violating them in official mm. bank documents. Um, those are the two sort of broad charges and the Canadians have detained her. And she's still an, out on bail, right? She yeah, she's be... still out on bail and an extradition hearing is going on in Canada. Okay. So she was in uh, Vancouver at that point of time mm. uh, and uh, she was traveling from there. She was in transit and she gets detained by Canadian officials on a request from the US Department of Justice for an extradition. And uh, it happens on the same day as Trump and Xi are meeting. Initially, you see the Chinese side essentially saying that... Uh, Okay, we want to draw a distinction between what's happened with Meng Wanzhou mm. and what's happened on the trade front. So when Xi Jinping comes back from the G20 summit in Argentina, he essentially, uh, Chinese press, Chinese official sort of spokespersons, foreign ministry, commerce ministry, they draw this distinction saying that we don't want to confuse these two issues. We don't agree with what's happening with the mm. Huawei CFO, uh, but we don't want to confuse these two issues. Uh, there's lots of positive momentum on the trade front and we're going to be talking to each other and we're going to try and see what do we do. Since then, they start a series of negotiation. And uh, from December last year till May this year, you have 11 rounds of talks. So back and forth from Beijing in Washington, D.C., um, back and forth delegations are traveling. Mm. Um, and it's again led by Liu He from the Chinese side and uh, Ambassador Lighthizer and Stephen Mnuchin from the U.S. side. And you have this negotiation where after each meeting, we get a trickle of reports which tell us that, okay, there's some sort of a deal being worked out on, say, the currency issue. Hmm. There's some sort of a deal that's now in the works on technology transfer issue mm -hmm. and, you know, the forced technology transfer issue uh, on intellectual property rights. There's some sort of a deal that's being worked out on uh, discriminatory practices against foreign investments in China. Um, and you can see there are actions also being taken by the Chinese side at the same time. So uh, China strengthens its IP legislation. Uh, it uh, launches, and these are things that have been in progress for a while. So it's not just directly a response to the Americans, but you launch special uh, intellectual property right, rights courts, mm. um, which are looking at more of these cases. State media starts to publicize more in terms of how many number of cases, IPR cases have been registered mm. and resolved, um, and how this environment for intellectual property rights protection has improved in China. You also have this hastily drafted new foreign investment law which uh, gets approved by the National People's Congress uh, in March this year. And from what reports tell us is that uh, the U.S. Business Council in China had a look at the law before it eventually was cleared and they had certain objections and those objections were then taken into account. Okay. Um, so the final legislation was much better than one would have hoped. Mm. But again, a lot of this depends on sort of implementation. You know, the law can only do so much unless it depends on how you implement it. Um, so from the Chinese point of view, they've actually made some of these concessions tangibly. Hmm. From the American point of view, uh, and, this, and what the Chinese are saying is that, uh, that uh, we've made some of these movements. Hmm. There's more that's going to follow. But we can't just do this wholesale in one go like you're asking. Um, because there's a system in place and we need to take care of structures within the Chinese system and uh, legislation needs to be thought through. And there's a process. Yeah, right? and there's For a policy. process. And yeah. and there's, that's the process of how the Chinese system works. Mm. Um, you can't just ask randomly a country to just change its system completely. Mm. And the Chinese argument is, look, we've just done these. We've mm. also opened up our auto sector. Mm. Uh, we're also opening up our financial sector. Uh, so Visa and MasterCard mm. get entries. So you're doing some of these things. And you're saying, look, this is our process of reforming and opening up. So domestic the Chinese are selling it as we're not doing this under American pressure this is reform and opening up and we had said that we will do this and therefore we are doing this while to the Americans they are saying look we are doing this hmm. um, and this is exactly what you want but you need to be patient with us from the American point of view the issue is we've been patient long enough hmm. you need to change and you need to change radically 
and okay if we take your word for it going forward what if you don't do things hmm. then what is the mechanism that we have to enforce this agreement that we come to hmm. and that's becomes that becomes one of the sticking points you know uh, hmm. so for months on end you hear the us side talking about an enforcement mechanism robert light has a uh, speaks to congress hmm. and he tells congress that uh, well tentatively we've come up with a framework hmm. and the framework is that we talk to each other regularly we raise specific issues regularly hmm. at all levels of government so it's not just beijing and dc but it's different levels of government that we're talking to and when you raise an issue there's a time frame within which an issue gets addressed if it doesn't get addressed we hold the option of tariffs snapping back and okay. that would be written in the agreement hmm. the chinese never confirmed this hmm. um the americans say that's the framework that we have and we're working towards this from a chinese point of view eventually this starts to become a point of bone of contention because it's like well you know i can't give away sovereign authority to you uh, to tell me that i've not done enough here and therefore i'm going to get penalized um yeah like making you know having another country sort of holding you accountable to your own policies is absolutely so yeah. from the chinese point of view that becomes mm. a sticking point but even then i think the talk sort of move on uh, and this is again this is sort of a trickle of information that comes out nothing official mm. about it these are just reports that come out until we reach this last 11th round of conversations in may mm. um and going into that round this was a round being held in dc i think it's march 11th may 11th is when this round was okay. held uh, i could be wrong by a day or two here mm. or there um and a couple of days before that a week before that round is actually supposed to take place according to reports from the american side essentially uh, they agreed on a document a draft mm. agreement by and large it was a 150 odd page agreement and the chinese side sent a fax uh, amending the agreement okay paring it down to about 100 pages mm. essentially removing all the commitments that they had made um and one of the sort of big commitments was changes to legislation within china and so on and so forth um the other thing that the Chi- that the american side says that the chinese have done is that uh, and this is all reports nothing mm. really official from here mm. um is that uh, they've removed also uh this requirement for china to not just alter legislation but all, they don't they don't want it to be done in a public manner okay so it it shouldn't appear mm. as though we are doing this under american pressure um and that just throws the white house into this complete Uh, chaos and Trump calls an emergency meeting and soon after that by Sunday so this happens on a Friday on Sunday Trump's Trump tweets that I'm going to be expanding my tariff war mm. um uh, for the next 48 24 hours I think you don't even get an acknowledgement from the Chinese side <laughs> that something like this has happened mm. it's radio silence uh which is strange given that they've been talking about this quite openly and I think it takes about 24 to 36 hours for them for the media to acknowledge that something like this has mm. happened obviously uh, immediately when this happens the impact is felt in china because the stock market collapses mm. um and there is this wonderful memes going around on weibo of uh, trump as thanos thanos snapping <laughs> oh, yeah. his fingers and trump sending a tweet and killing mm. the market and eventually you end up getting uh, a response mm. which is that well if you're going to do this then we're going to we're also going to react mm. in kind and you know we'll decide what we want to do but we'll react in kind and um but neither side sort of backs away from the talks um soon after that uh, eventually liu he goes to dc they have a conversation the conversation doesn't yield much mm. um the reports that subsequently come out is that liu he comes back and he says that look we've got three broad sort of principled issues on which we've not been able to agree and the first principle of that is uh, that this sovereignty must be respected mm. um which is a which is pointing towards the fact that the americans wanted changes in legislation mm. subsequently what's come out is that possibly what the americans wanted was uh, changes to even laws which said that uh, laws related to storage of data in china so mm. cloud computing uh, companies uh, should not be uh, legally required to store mm. data in china they should be allowed to take the data out uh, and the second thing is uh, with regard to the great firewall um that apparently they what the americans wanted was for them for the chinese to completely dismantle the great firewall uh, which is never really going to happen that's a very ambitious goal yeah i mean that's uh, you know that's bargaining from a position which you know is never going to happen um so it gives you the sense that it's likely that there was much more happening than we know of um but it also gives you the sense that would the chinese ever so a lot of the commentary sort of you know it goes two ways it depends on which side of the fence you're sitting uh, from a chinese point of view it seems eminently re- unreasonable for somebody to ask for these things but from an american point of view you're going to go back and say that look 
if our principle is reciprocity and open markets, it needs to operate at all levels. Um, and the argument even from some American commentators, uh, and there's a, there's a just argument to be made here, that if this is a technology war, mm. and if this is a war of reciprocity and openness mm. of markets and so on and so forth, and the Chinese keep talking about, you know, how what Trump is doing and his protectionist mm. policies are burying Adam Smith, mm. uh, which is fascinatingly a People's Daily editorial. Huh. Uh, if the Chinese keep talking about that, then, then they need to back up their words with action. You can't be blocking Google and then telling me if I'm blocking Huawei. The, the problem with just war, my problem with just war theory generally is that like both sides will call themselves moral. You know, the Chinese will say the Americans are not being fair and the Americans are violating sovereignty. Yeah. The Americans will say, oh, the Chinese don't respect freedoms in all its essential forms. And yeah. essentially all we want is liberty for all people and yeah. a dignified sort of life for everybody. But... Look, you know, I think I think the Americans have a case to be made here, and uh, and I think a lot of the case for them is made by Xi Jinping himself. Yeah. Um, nobody asked Xi Jinping to go on the world stage and start talking about openness, and you know, he saw an opportunity with Trump's election. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he went to Davos and he spoke about openness and free markets, and you know, when rivers meet and that's when growth happens, and all these and wonderful metaphors. And there was a splurge of articles on how China is now going to be at the head Absolutely. of the liberal world Absolutely. order, right? and yet it remains one of the most closed economies. In in many ways. Um, mm. uh, it's not just the Americans. I mean, the Europeans are talking about reciprocity with China. India is talking about reciprocity and, open, and market access with China. So uh, there is a legitimate case to be made over there with mm. regard to you can't be talking the talk mm. while not walking the walk. And I think that's uh, a legitimate case to be made. Mm. Now, do you respond to that by out china China? You know, you can't out China China. I mean, that's that's the essential argument, right? Where you're trying to block companies based on national security. That's exactly mm. what they've done to, say, Google or to Facebook yeah, yeah, or to Twitter. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what Trump is doing to mm. Huawei and saying that Trump is not saying that Huawei is doing uh, is inefficient and therefore crowded mm-hmm. out or whatever. It's, it's a national security threat. Okay, wait. So before we get on to Huawei, like just in terms of game theory sense, right? Mm. These are two actors who are not sort of cooperating, they don't sort of want to completely go out to an all-out confrontation um, situation. So where do you think this will sort of head? Because both of them are also hedging for their own domestic population. Weibo is filled with all these people who are going on about, you know, Huawei or about visas and things like that, right? So how do you think this will end up? So this is... uh, wow. Nobel Prize waiting if I answer that. <laughs> but, okay, no, so let's see. Uh, what's happening essentially is that there is a decoupling of the economic ecosystems, the technology hmm. and the economic ecosystems. And that's a painful process to happen. Um, I don't know how successful both sides will be in doing that. Because uh, in a world which is interconnected, you can create yeah. connections from many multiple nodes while being decoupled in many which ways. Um so I don't know how successful both sides have been doing mm. that. This right now to me seems... this proxim- At a proximate level, this seems like a game of chicken. Mm. Um, and uh, But at a sort of broader level, this is gradual build-up of a strategic competition. Mm. Um, it's where both sides are recognizing that there is... What's problematic about how this has developed is that both sides have started to see each other as somewhat of a... Well, not necessarily entirely existential, but somewhat of an existential threat. Mm. So that narrative is sort of growing. Uh, Within China, that narrative is growing. It serves the party domestically, of course, Mm. to have that narrative. Uh, But within America, um, there is increasingly this sense that the Chinese are threatening our view of the Mm. world order. Um, And that essentially is a threat to American supremacy, not just the rise of Chinese power in itself, but also the expansion of Chinese power internationally is threatening the legitimacy of American power and American and the institutions which are built up post the World War, post World War Two. And I don't think while that's happening, there is a recognition that it's actually the Trump administration, which has undermined a lot of this. Um, But I think there is an acceptability in the US of doing some of this stuff Mm -hmm. because the world has changed. So I, I don't see where this will end up. I don't mm. see conflict, mm. but the prospect of conflict increases mm. because uh, I think so far both sides are quite conscious of the fact that we don't want these tensions to spill over into the military domain. Mm. Um, just last week, essentially it was the Pentagon that said that we want to sort of disassociate this trade issue 
from our military dialogue and we want to keep the military dialogue going mm-hmm. but that has not stopped this from spilling over so s- simple enough uh, the rim pacific exercise that happened mm-hmm. the chinese were uninvited a couple of years ago and that was on other charges but essentially you that was a one point of engagement that you had directly mm-hmm. which had built over the last few years and that engagement stopped mm. yet you do have certain bilateral drills that the two sides are doing so there is some engagement that's happening and there is need for military to military dialogue given the fact that both these countries operate vessels in uh, international waters they uh, the americans operate very closely in the pacific ocean around china so there is this uh, need for dialogue mm. because a small incident could become could sort of escalate into something else um, if there is this general sense of mistrust um and i think so far both sides are cognizant of that so therefore i don't see conflict imminent mm. what i do see imminent is a greater decoupling so you're going to see more uh actions taken by governments on both sides mm. to pressurize each other so um, more chest thumping more, more chest thumping but not just chest thumping but also quite serious actions so just uh, i mean going back to the huawei thing just mm. what's what the americans have done with huawei um in response last week the chinese came up with the suggestion that we are going to be putting up a list of and i quote unreliable entities which includes mm. companies enterprises people who so essentially is, yeah. violated the law and that's sort of a response to you know you've got your commerce ministry entity commerce department entity list i raised you an unreliable entity list um so it's something like that uh, but that's going to squeeze the space so the real people who are going to suffer here are businesses and multinational corporations and small businesses students um, who are going students study. who are traveling yeah the, mm. the space for even students is hardening mm. and researchers is hardening and so that's the kind of bunch of people who are really going to struggle mm-hmm. businesses that have to move supply chains mm-hmm. students who can no longer go and conduct research as freely as they would on both sides mm-hmm. so there's going to be a general hardening um how does that lead to a divided world does do we return to some sort of a cold war period uh, i doubt that we are ever going to go mm-hmm. back to the, the kind of cold war that we mm-hmm. had but uh, countries increasingly seeing that they need to make some sort of a choice mm. and therefore not wanting to make that choice um yes um, we've had the european say that we've just last week at the shangri-la dialogue we had the singaporean leader say that you know guys don't make us choose yeah um, yeah yeah so and we're increasingly also, seeing that uh, you know when the the five eyes were meeting the yeah. intelligence agencies yeah. of the five uh, countries there was also sort of uh, american pressure on the british saying you know you need to choose a side when the yeah. british said we need sort of hard evidence yeah. that you know huawei is actually doing something that's damaging to national security yeah um so that that's another fascinating story uh, it's there are multiple ways in which that story can be interpreted um this is about the five wise countries it's the uk the us australia australia new zealand and japan uh yeah yep yeah. these are the five countries uh, and these guys uh, they meet about i think the first meeting from what i remember was in no sorry canada not japan uh, sorry oh, yes, canada huh. yeah just uh, yeah and they meet in nova scotia in canada hmm. uh, and they talk about huawei specifically hmm. and all of these guys seem to have some concerns so hmm. even in britain the intelligence community has serious concerns it's the politicians and the guys who are managing industry and the economy they are the guys who are looking at more sort of looking at things differently the intelligence agencies are fairly clear that there is a serious concern here what are these concerns like okay. for people who don't know what is the problem with huawei or zte okay. to that extent so essentially the idea is uh, that these companies given the nature of 5g technology which is mm. what everybody is going to invest in for the next decade or so mm. and given so 5g brings you a certain amount of benefits one is speed it's mm. going to be much much faster your data transfer is going to be much much faster there's going to be z- near zero latency mm-hmm. so which essentially means that uh, you're going to have much more real time action possible okay. as opposed to so essentially what this means is that the time taken from you typing in a web address and mm-hmm. clicking enter and the time it takes for that web page to load mm-hmm. that is essentially your latency the time for that thing to hit and for the data to come to you um so that's going to be near zero it's mm. going to be super fast um and then finally the third thing is that the connection density towards the tower towards the connection uh, base yeah considering how we're going wireless right this is also going to be about using internet for your cars and your homes absolutely. and to so, power everything around absolutely. you absolutely so it's these three sort of 
advantages that mm. will allow you to do those things mm. because if you're going to be driving an autonomous vehicle mm. it needs to react in real time mm. as opposed to sending data and holding on for mm. a minute while it buffers just the same thing is with uh, say and also it's not just you who needs to be on the network but also those 10000 other people mm. who are driving in the same area um so that's the essential idea now what that does is that it not only increases the possibility of more automation but it also brings in newer risks because the more number of devices the more data flow the mm. more fast the data flow is the more difficult it is to supervise some of this stuff mm. um so that's at a very rudimentary level what the issue with 5g is right. that there are these opportunities and there are these threats okay um so again also with the kind of activities that are possible with 5g the kind of use cases that are possible from healthcare to autonomous drive to vehicles to you know better transportation uh city grid management and so on and so forth it will become a part of your critical infrastructure absolutely and that is where you are worried if a company or an organization which is providing infrastructure to support that mm. is beholden to a state whose interests are inimical to yours the authority that you give that state to be able to inflict damage on to you mm. is the power that you're giving up is mm. extremely high now the issue with huawei is essentially about is huawei a private company mm. well sort of sort of so the largest more. telecommunications country in Absolutely. china right yes they are they are the largest telecommunications company they are the second largest smartphone mm. manufacturer they uh, provide uh, they hold the most number of uh, 5g patents so it's a company that's a force to reckon with um, okay so what do you mean by they're not necessarily a private company well not necessarily a private company because huawei's uh, ownership structure is quite opaque um, okay. so what we know of the ownership structure is that about 98.6% of the shares are owned by employees uh, which are all clubbed under something called a union and that union is represented and elected by employees we don't know which are these employees that are holding these shares and what they are but if you look at their website what you know is that about 1.4% of the share holding is with Ran Zhengfei mm. who is the chief executive officer and the founder of Huawei and he was previously uh, a member of the people's liberation army um that in itself is not as big an issue to me mm. um the issue is that uh, till 2012 uh we didn't really 2011 2012 we didn't really know about even this structure mm. this structure became public only because there was an investigation in 2012 in the US where the US Congress was investigating it mm. the house of representatives was investigating Huawei and uh that's when we found out oh this is a structure and oh you know there is this democratic decision making and all of that mm. but it's still extremely opaque who the shareholders are it's not a publicly listed company mm. despite being such a massive organization and the linkages between Huawei and the Chinese state are fairly clear now mm. what these linkages are uh, when china goes and invests in countries under bri say uh, also before bri but under bri right now and it goes and signs a telecommunications deal in say angola or zambia mm. the contract is not necessarily public mm. and the line of credit is extended for huawei to build this infrastructure okay now if that's not a direct subsidy to a company then i don't know what is mm. so that's you know one of the problems that the chinese state heavily subsidizes this mm. company and at the end of the day who controls the checkbook controls the reins of power um so that's one of the big problems the second big problem is there was a legislation passed in 2017 and that law essentially requires companies on matters of national security to work with the state and do whatever the state essentially wants you to do mm. the language is quite clear okay now what that ends up doing is that anyway an organization which requires under the chinese system to have party committees at decision making mm. levels at one level where the founder has had deep associations with the party and the pla which is heavily subsidized by the state not just through the means that i described say under a foreign contract but also domestically mm. for research grants and all that and i don't think some of those research grants are problematic in themselves mm. but when you build this causal chain it becomes problematic and then you have this legislation mm. which requires you to do some of these things in that environment even if huawei wants to pursue corporate interests those corporate interests might end up being subservient to state interests mm. uh when required and when needed and that's where the problem lies the potential for damage through something like 5g technology in cases of certain countries uh, can be extremely high 
particularly given that the Chinese state has shown that it is happy to use economic coercion for political objectives. In cases of which countries? Can so let's just say, let's just take India as a case. Okay. Right. So in the Indian case, if we saw during Doklam, hmm. where you ended up in a situation where the Chinese media was constantly talking to you about threatening war. Hmm. In that scenario, if your critical infrastructure in a certain city, hmm. uh, say your transportation infrastructure is hmm. dependent on Huawei, you know, in 10 cities or 12 cities, and, you know, the potential for disruption of that can be, it's not, you can't rule that out. Hmm. It's likely that that could happen. There will be costs to do that, of course, hmm. you know. You, but then the fact is that if you've, if you've settled in with Huawei and if you've built that infrastructure and you spend billions of dollars doing that, you're not going to uproot them. Mm. so easily because yeah, there are yeah. multiple costs associated with it. Yeah. So the potential for disruption, the potential for somebody to just weaponize something like this mm. for economic coercion lies with the state then, mm. which is different from say, let's say how a Google would operate. Uh, so let's just, Apple would operate. Or an Apple would operate. Yeah. Companies that have been accused of colluding with exactly. the American yeah, government. But the it's just the uh, ability... Uh, can Apple disrupt your systems the way? Mm. Not really. Um, so it's about the power that the technology is going to provide mm. and also the fact that the state has a certain influence over a company. Mm. Now, the Chinese have long made and Huawei has long made the argument that we don't support the state and, you know, the state is a separate entity. Mm. We are a separate entity. We don't, uh, we won't give up anything to the party. But that's not really the case. I mean, you, it would be very difficult for a Chinese company mm. not to bend when the party asked it to. Even the private listed organization. Mm. For years, we knew that Alibaba was a private organization. Mm. Uh, lo and behold, now Jack Ma tells us that he's been a member of the party. I don't think that should be surprise anybody that he was a member of the party because yeah, you don't yeah. thrive without being that. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the Chinese ecosystem sort of supports people who yeah. also collude with the party. And Absolutely. That's just crony capitalism in any situation. Absolutely. It's not specific to China. Yeah. The only problem there is that the potential... For the Chinese government, for the party to leverage this for mm. economic coercion for political ends. And that is mm. a real problem. So when the Americans see this, mm. to me, part of the argument is this. Although Huawei has a very limited presence in America, mm. very limited, very small, limited to certain rural areas, it's not at all significant. So in terms of smartphones or what technologies? Uh, no, in, in terms of even infrastructure. Okay. I don't think Huawei smartphones are a big deal in the US. Yeah. Uh, Huawei smartphones sell in Africa, okay. Asia, these mm. parts of the world more so. The UK, yes. Mm. Uh, but I don't think they're a big deal in America. I don't have the figures. But my sense is that it's not that big a market for mm. the US is not that big a market mm. for Huawei smartphones. Um, but the smartphones are not really the issue. So okay. the hardware is not the issue. Mm. The issue is some of these uh, lines that you will lay, mm. some of the devices that you will set up which will transfer data. Mm. So th one of the things that you would have constantly heard is, oh, Huawei products have backdoors. Yeah. Now, yeah. every telecommunication product has a backdoor. Okay. What, what is a backdoor? Just so okay. So it's essentially like this: uh, when you have a device mm. which is transmitting data, uh, and which is operating, you know, your data flows, which is which is operating your data flows, which is giving you images, which is doing all of these things. That device needs to be able to be connected. There has to be a link between the device and the service provider, mm. so that the service provider can check. So whether it's your Android smartphone. Mm. Your when your Android system gets upgraded mm. or when there is an error, there has to be a link between you and your service provider, mm. your device and your service provider. Yeah, yeah. And that happens. You know, my Apple iPhone, every once in a while when I'm not updated at all, Apple forcefully updates my mm. phone. Um, and that's because there is a link over there. So that's essentially your back door. It's actually not a back door, it's a front door because mm. you know it exists. Exactly. What you don't know is what is the data that's being transmitted mm. through that door. And when data transmission speeds increase so, so rapidly, it's going to be very difficult to even police anyway what's happening. Mm. So that brings another whole another dimension of how do you monitor what's being sent. Mm. I mean, in Huawei's case, if you remember a couple of years ago, there was a report of the African Union's building being bugged by Huawei. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's because Huawei is the service provider for the African Union building and uh, for their headquarters. And uh, apparently over years, uh, over overnight, there used to be data transfers from that headquarters to China and that they did not know about. That was what the scandal was. Mm. Neither side eventually, of, of course, acknowledges that there was mm. a scandal and Africa continues to be heavily invested. Even the African Union continues to be heavily invested. They haven't uh, gone away from Huawei. And that's just because there is a comparative advantage. Mm. And for a region like that, mm. to look at Huawei and say, well, okay, everybody is going to be snooping on us. Whether it's Huawei, whether it's China, whether it's the US, whether it's mm. Europe, whether it's anybody else. Everybody's going to be snooping. 
so how much do we have to worry about the snooping just like uh, i think i can't remember if it was the malaysian uh, it was mahathir or who who said this but essentially they said well you can snoop as much as you want there's nothing here to see um and we'd rather take the comparative advantage of the cheap cost um because it's not just cheap in price but it's also high quality and this is the argument that lots of countries particularly poorer ones across the world have made whether it's in terms of infrastructure yeah. or whatever it is when people say oh you know china's loans will lead to debt traps they yeah. say yes but you know we'll deal with that when we come to that yeah and who's providing uh, who's, who is providing it to me otherwise yeah. so it's you know it's a and these are people who uh, you know who need to who these are politicians who need to make choices because they've made promises uh, and you need capital to fulfill those promises and if you're getting capital which is uh, fairly cheap uh, at least which is available uh, without conditions that you would find difficult you would take it and you would deal with it in the next election or the election yeah, after that yeah and you would right? deal with it later and also increasingly what we've seen is that just in terms of the economics of this debt issue mm-hmm. the countries that have taken money from china it's not that they've lost leverage of negotiation in fact the chinese when you've reached a point where you've invested oh i've invested 6 billion dollars here and these guys are unable to pay me back so do i i can't really go on and seizing assets from everybody because yeah. it will result in a massive problem and do i want to really seize these assets so i might as well end up in a position that i have to renegotiate with them so the negotiation power of the chinese particularly just from an economics point of view is i think it's slightly over, overweighed Mm. Uh, I don't think it should be valued that much mm. but yeah the debt business gives you additional leverage which you can use in different ways so you can sort of shape politically favorable outcomes so say at you know just let's just take an example and again I have no data to back this this is just something that I believe is possible or maybe this is something that somebody can research mm. uh it's voting at the united nations hmm. no, you can voting influence at the united nations is just something that yeah you can fairly researched on right and the number of countries that have yeah. been sort of voting for taiwan consistently which yeah, are so that's one example that's one very good example of how you can use you know your economic leverage to mm. uh, yield political outcomes um, so yeah there are multiple such outcomes that the chinese can then end up fashioning mm. but it need not necessarily be seizure of assets uh, through debt mm. uh, the debt is also a problem because invariably uh, your companies also start to feel financial crunches which are happening mm-hmm. right now at this point let's take a break Hi, I'm Anupam Gupta, B50 on Twitter, and listen into the Equity Sahiya podcast brought to you by Motila Loswal Asset Management Company. The Equity Sahiya podcast offers deep investment insights into the potential of many sectors in India which are growing and have a lot to offer for your portfolio. New episodes out every Tuesday on the IBM Podcast app or any other app where you get your podcasts from. Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsini Hariharan. All right, so back to Huawei. Hmm. So, how invested is in India in Huawei? Do, do you know what the size of the population in India that uses uh, I don't devices? know how many how many people in India are using Huawei smartphones, but uh, I think that there are a lot more people using uh, say uh, Oppo, Vivo, these hmm. kinds of smartphones. OnePlus. Yeah, OnePlus, these kinds of uh, and all of these are Chinese. Hmm. Um so I don't know what Huawei's smartphone penetration is in India. but i know that the company has a long history in india mm. uh, they've been working here since 1999 at least uh, we had the big center in bangalore mm. uh, which they have further invested in uh, and when all this started this friction with the us started huawei did with india exactly what it's doing with the rest of the other players around the world where it's basically offered um carrots mm. um some sticks so say canada has received lots of brick pads um australia new zealand more recently mm. um and some of the others have had threats yeah but that's because you know canada has stayed that ceo australia yeah. i think since australia 2011 or something have no, been but australia australia last year did go ahead and ban huawei from 5g networks mm. so that was the issue new zealand has also announced a partial ban mm. uh the japanese have announced a partial ban uh, at least in government procurements but they've generally chosen to sort of decouple and those signally those signals once the government sends private players also tend to sort of say okay i need to stay clear of this um okay. so some of these countries uh, they've offered carrots to but they've also sort of been annoyed and there's been lots of uh, other reactions mm. so with in the case of canada like say they've just 
put a halt on canola oil trade, which mm. is important for Canada. Um, yeah. But, but just a question for these countries: Where is this policy coming from? Is it coming from a U.S. directive in a sense, or is it coming from okay, we face, we believe evidence that Huawei poses national security threats? I think it's a bit of both. So I think there is a there is a sense of what the U.S. is doing mm. and where the U.S. is heading. Um, but there is also, uh, and this is the bigger part of it. Mm. There's also a sense of, look, this is a challenge domestically. Given the threats of, and given not just a thre- potential threat mm. of this being weaponized in some way or the other, but also given the threat of you being locked into one side, mm. is problematic, and you are weighing that. So you're weighing these what we call operational concerns of potential espionage, potential disruption. Uh, potential denial of services uh, at one level. Mm. Uh, And then there is a strategic level threat where you're looking at the possibility of uh, two very distinct systems of technology development emerging, if not two, maybe more, but at least a decoupled technology environment emerging. And in that, where do you want to be locked in? Mm. Uh, Because... Let's be honest, this is billions and billions of dollars of being in, being invested. And once you do that, it's very difficult to just snap back and say, oh, now since this has happened, I'm going to pull back and I'm not going to do this. So once you invest in a certain system and once you invest in a certain company uh, or allow them to in- build your infrastructure, it's very difficult to then remove it. I mean, British Telecom is trying to do that with Huawei where they've said no more Huawei after Huawei essentially built their 4G networks. Um, and it's costing them a lot of money. Mm. So you can't keep doing this again and again. And that's where this sort of choice is being made, mm. where do you want this this technology at a cost-efficient, high-quality uh, cost technology with these concerns? Mm. Or do you not want them? Or the third alternative, which countries in Europe particularly are looking at, and is that, okay, we want this, but we want to put adequate safeguards. And then the debate is, well, can there be adequate safeguards? Mm. Yeah. And what is adequate? What is an mm. adequate safeguard? Um, so that is the nature of the discussion right now in sort of countries ranging from Europe, Asia, India, mm. uh, in terms of how do we approach this? Because the strategic threat, there is an operational threat and there is a strategic threat mm. which is accentuated because of how the U.S. has gone about essentially saying either you're with us or you're against us. Yeah. That's interesting. It brings to my mind, uh, I think last year, uh, Gua Ping, I think he's one of the hmm. deputy directors at Huawei. So they had a, one of those annual meetings of telecom yeah. industries around the world. I think they were holding it in Barcelona and uh, everyone was making speeches and apparently on stage he went... Uh, Prism, prism on the yes. wall. Who is the most uh, yeah, trustworthy so this, of this, them all? This, this happened this February. This happened this February. Huh. Uh, I think this was the Mobile World Congress. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, that's the, exa- that, that's the point. You know, so even from an Indian point of view, uh, just like I said, from an African point of view, there are, you know that people are going to be listening to you. Hmm. And you know that people are going to be watching you. It's about the choice of how much can you mitigate that? Hmm. Plus, who would you prefer watching you? Hmm. Who do you feel is a bigger threat in the near term, at least if not the long term. And from an Indian point of view, uh, just like maybe from a European point of view, although I can't speak for that, them, the sense would be that from an Indian point of view, China is obviously a far bigger threat. We have a border dispute. We have serious issues which have grown, Hmm. particularly with Belt and Road and all that. Along with that, there is also an opportunity that China presents, uh, which is a massive economy still growing, Hmm. you know, massive trade potential and so Hmm. on and so forth. At the other level is the US. Uh, I mean, China is close to us and therefore it's a bigger threat for all these other reasons also. For Europe, well, it's not close to us, Mm. but it's increasingly creeping closer Mm. um, with Belt and Road. And that's the problem. The second problem is uh, you fear the sense of being trapped between these two behemoths uh, who seem to be on a collision course. And... You also, from a European point of view, under Trump, there has been such an undermining of this transatlantic mm. partnership. Then now the question is, do you want to be in the American basket? Mm. I mean, this is the first time that I'm hearing seriously at very senior European policy level discussions on the concept of strategic autonomy being touted again and mm. again. And that's because you're suddenly seeing that the world is changing and America has changed. And that's forcing you to wonder whether you want to be in that block 
mm. or whether you want to have flexibility for yourself if there are these different blocks that are emerging mm. again that's something very similar to what India's worldview is because while we would prefer so if given the choice do you want to be snooped on by the Chinese or do you want to be snooped on by the Americans I think most Indians would say okay the Americans are better yeah um, but uh, it's not that we have a history of also issues with the US yeah I mean at the end of the day our relationship with the US comes from you know the late 90s exactly um, before that we were fairly estranged <laughs> exactly so it's uh, it's not an easy relationship it's mm. much better than it has ever been but even then there would be this sense of well we also want to maintain a certain degree of autonomy because for all these historical reasons but also the reason that we have this sense of ourselves as a pole in this emerging multipolar mm. order and that can only be possible when we maintain a certain space for ourselves a certain room for ourselves but doing that is where you're trying to find this balance yeah and it's difficult right the us sanctions on iran for yeah. example have been a case in point for the indian administration yeah. Um, and how, I think, you know, trying to maneuver this will also be difficult for them. And not only yeah. Huawei, but also the trade war, right? Yeah. I was reading that there are some countries that have that are doing well. You know, Vietnam and Taiwan now have Chinese yeah. uh, exports routed through them to yeah. the US because it's much cheaper for exporters yeah. to do that. Whereas, you know, you have countries, I think, like Argentina, who are now supplying soya beans that the US yeah. was uh, sending to China before. Yeah. So I think India can also, uh, th- there is a space that it can Yeah, there occupy. is, this This has also opened up spaces for us. I mean, mm. so there is this challenge of how do you do this, but there's also new spaces that have opened up. I mean, there, there is a reason why over the last year, suddenly India and China are talking about addressing the trade deficit mm. and the Chinese are talking about greater mark, market access. Mm. Um, not much has changed, but in the last one year, our trade deficit has fallen by a bit. Mm. Um, but yet, it's still significant. It's over 55, 60,000, uh, 60, billion US dollars um, and what uh, what we understand is that this government that the current Indian government has been trying to identify products particularly mm. agricultural exports and try and open spaces for those in the Chinese market and there have been repeated delegations that have come back and forth um, to expand so we've heard rice sugar this expansion of exports of rice and sugar has already happened um, apples is the next thing um, so there's lots of ways in which we're looking at it but Will this address the trade deficit? No. Yeah, that was going to be my question. We're not, you know, a third world country. Why are we exporting rice and apples and sugar when we could be exporting software and services? And, and that's the that's the negotiation that needs to be that needs to happen. So that's the mm. serious negotiation. Look, we're we're importing these capital heavy goods from China, mm. uh, hardware and other things, and uh, that's uh, those are expensive goods. We're exporting agricultural products. We need to be actually exporting software. We need to be actually tying up with them on software. Mm. We need to be uh, working with them on a number of other things, services, pharmaceuticals. Mm. That's our biggest bane with the Chinese. Mm. Um, And nothing has moved the needle on these so far. Mm. I think moving the needle on these so far, not just at a government level, but also at a business-to-business level is important. From what I understand, one of the fears of uh, a lot of Indian drug makers is that well, you know, if you enter the Chinese market, IP regulations are so weak, you get easily, mm-hmm. you know, you get copied very easily and then you get replaced very easily. So some of the concerns are also associated with those things. So therefore, I don't think from an Indian point of view, what Trump is doing is necessarily a bad thing. Mm. You know, if Trump can get the Chinese to improve their IP regulation implementation, good for us. I, I don't know if you saw the KFC ad recently, but you know how in China you have... Um, mock brands right so like KFC you have AFC BFC so they found all of these from all the letters all the alphabets from A to Z put those together and said thank you we're flattered in a tweet (laughs) and I I thought that was just very typical of what was happening with you know IP and the main problem that the US was having with China I think think those are serious issues I think those are serious issues that the Chinese need to address to be able to build Mm. some of this confidence they've done things but there's lots more that needs to be done Um, and at the same time they need to be opening up providing certain protections but also opening up their market much more than um, so the the gap between the rhetoric and the reality is really really big and if Xi Jinping is able to you know narrow that gap it will address it'll be if under Trump's pressure the Chinese administration is able to narrow that gap it's great for India also it also gives India this ideal 
particularly as the strategic competition between the US and China grows, it also gives India an ideal sort of space to become what is what we call a swing power. Mm. A power that has a better relationship with both sides than they actually have with each other. Mm. Um, and then therefore play some sort of a role in between and try to leverage the best opportunities that arise mm. from both of them. And that's, I think, a legitimate space that's opening up because for the longest time, the Pakistan Chinese, has played that role. Yeah, you know, and I think we can potentially going forward play that role. Uh, that's but but that that's contingent on also our bilateral relationship with China. Um, I think also the fact that the Trump administration has been so hard on China, and and this sort of hinting of the Indo-Pacific mm. and the Quad and so on and so forth, that's uh, opened up spaces for India because the Chinese understand that. One of the problems, one of the big problems of the Indo-Pacific strategy that could, you know, one of the big problems that could be there for them is that if India actually lines up closer to the US. Mm. So a lot of Chinese commentary and conversation on India in the last year and a half, particularly, has been about looking at India through an American prism, Mm. through the prism of what they see as an American containment strategy. Um, And that to me is an opportunity for India. Mm. um, Because... Till they feel that sense of anxiety, mm-hmm. you need to be cognizant of that anxiety mm-hmm. to not uh, let it become manifest into a reality of mm-hmm. policy. But it's good for that anxiety to be there, right? Because uh, yeah. that helps us. Mm. So Manoj, this is a question that I generally ask my guests at the end of the show. So if anyone wants to read more about the US-China trade war or Huawei or what's happening, what resources should they turn to? Okay, um, so the first resource that I can tell you is that uh, in June, we put out a document mm. on uh, Huawei and what is India's way forward. Mm. So do take a look at that document. That will tell you, uh, that sort of fleshes out a lot of the points that I've made today, which is about uh, not just Huawei's ownership, but also the ties to the Communist Party and state support and so on and so forth. And the geopolitics around 5G, because of which India has to make certain decisions. Uh the second piece that I would I would really recommend people read uh, analysts like Paul Trillo, mm. uh, who've done wonderful work. People like Elsa Kanya, mm. uh, who writes mostly on AI, but she's also written on 5G. These are people who understand the technology. Mm. These are people who are not necessarily providing you a jaundiced view of uh, what's happening in the world. Mm. Um, and yeah, and uh, some of them provide you really insightful views into how... This technology contest is reshaping supply chains Mm. and what are the costs of doing all of this Mm. and how difficult it is to actually do all of this. So, you know, our common sense is that we look at China and the US as individual actors as though they are moving pawns on a chessboard, Mm. but there are ramifications which are even beyond, uh, you know, there are these unintended consequences. Um, And when you start to look at those is when you understand how difficult this simplistic narrative of a cold war or a digital iron curtain Mm. and all are because uh, it's not that easy to break some of these linkages of technology and innovation given that you know a chip is imagined somewhere Mm. designed somewhere fabricated somewhere used somewhere else so to break that chain Mm. is extremely difficult and it's extremely costly and again it is the consequences of this are far beyond just the US and China. If Huawei is to shut down, what does it do to African connectivity? And Africa doesn't really have a dog in this fight. So yeah, so some of this stuff is something that we should be looking at. All right. Thanks so much, Manoj. Thank, Thank you for you. speaking Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. And we're done with this episode of States of Anarchy. If you're interested in the spat over Huawei, then I have some resources for you in the episode description. If you're interested in China, I'd highly recommend signing up for the Eye on China newsletter if you haven't already. Now, if you have any comments or questions, then do holler at me at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram or at the rate Hamsini H on Twitter. You can listen to States of Anarchy not only on the IVM podcast app, but also on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you haven't subscribed already, just click on the button and before you know it, we'll be back next week. Filter coffee is a fascinating beverage. You need to pick the right beans, blend them in the right proportion, roast them to perfection, and slow brew at the right temperature to get the perfect cup. Which is exactly like great conversations as well. You need to track down the most interesting minds, 
get them into their zone and settle down for an unhurried unscripted chat and coffee for me is always 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 best enjoyed with friends i'm karthik nagarajan and do share my table as i meet some of the most interesting people i know and sit them down for a strong cup of coffee and an even stronger conversation join me every wednesday for a freshly brewed episode this is not frappe this is the filter coffee podcast hey krupa check out my beatboxing boots and cat and boots and cat man please stop cats all right check out my singing no i'm serious stop but why because you're genuinely bad and because you've got actual talent to showcase Presenting the ATKT Talent Time podcast, where I, Krupa, and IP Man, chat with some immensely talented college students about the fun part of college, like freshers' life, the music and poetry scene, side hustles for college students, and the not so fun, like weird dress codes, hostel deadlines, and ragging. New episodes every Tuesday on the IVM Podcast app, the IVM Podcast website, and wherever else you get your podcasts from. Hey, Krupa. Check out my poetry. Roses are red. No. Violets no, are blue. No, 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 no. You are special. Please.